Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Kathy. Yes? Will you tell me one of your deepest, darkest fears? No. (laughs) That's embarrassing. Okay, okay, okay. Here's what we're going to do. On the count of three, let's just both say a fear out loud. Okay, ready? One, two, three. I I live in constant constant fear that I am letting you down and that you will be disappointed in me. I think it has something to do with my parents, but I can't be sure. Also birds. Wow, look at us. From WNYC Studios, you're listening to Nancy. With your hosts, Tobin Lowe and Kathy Tu. So, Kath. Yes. There is another WNYC podcast out there that I super love because it's kind of unlike anything out there. Is it 10 Things That Scare Me? In fact, it is. Because I also love that show. Isn't it great? Yeah. First of all, super bite-sized. It's around five minutes long. And in each episode, you hear about one person's fears. Number one, dear. Number two, thinking too much about things that scare me. Uh, Number three, underwater wiffle balls. Some fears are funny. Some are more serious. Having my special needs son be able to hire good attendants. The man I once saw on the subway eating a full tub of cream cheese. Like, just out of the tub. And you get to hear a little bit about the why. I think deer are really pretty, but they just have these tiny little, like, mouse brains. We're always doing the same mistakes. That's what I think. Like, I think we go from Salem witch trials to McCarthyism to the the anti-AIDS stuff in the 80s that I lived through to this now. And I just am like, we just, I just am waiting for Nazi Germany again. So the reason we're bringing up 10 things today is because we recently listened to an episode we loved. It's with Natalie Diaz, who is a queer Mojave poet, former professional basketball player, and a 2018 MacArthur genius. So today, we're going to play Natalie's episode of 10 Things That Scare Me. Mm -hmm. And then, Kathy, you're going to sit down and have a conversation with her. Number one, I'm afraid of, like, there's a certain hour that comes in the evening uh, because I have anxiety. So if I don't get to bed at about, you know, by 11 p.m., my anxiety kind of comes up and I... I get out of bed and do push-ups to push the anxiety out of my body. Sometimes Xanax helps. (laughs) Push-ups or Xanax. Number two, my body's limits. Number three, I have a lot of fear for that I would have another uh, breaking point. About five years ago, I spent three months on my mother's couch um, and I couldn't go anymore. I couldn't work anymore. I couldn't, you know, I was in the middle of beginning a language revitalization program, which was very intense and very emotional work on my reservation with my elders. And it was really a, it's like this one of the scariest moments I've had is to wake up in the morning and then not know how you're going to get through the day. Part of that worry is that uh, growing up, my mother had a really bad depression, and so she spent about four years in bed. And I'll never forget an image that just kind of burned into me as um, we came home from school one day, and 
uh, my father, he had like carried my mother to the shower to take a shower. Like she couldn't even do that. And so um, my brothers and sisters, like we all helped him like wash her hair and stuff. And so that to me feels like a very real worry that I try to stay aware of. Number four, uh, I'm afraid of snakes. I dream about them a lot, and they're often trying to talk with me or communicate with me in the dream. And, you know, I, I've really, I'm really lucky that I have a relationship with, you know, some of my elder family members. So they're always saying, you need to listen to them in your dreams to hear what it is they're telling you. But I'm, I also, they're also snakes. <laughs> and so maybe in a way it's a little bit more of like a, there are things I know but don't want to know or things I, I should know but I'm not ready to know. Number five, I think a lot about wasting food. So I have this kind of like matrix-like ticker tape in my mind of, of all of like the meals I haven't completely finished. And I think about them because I think in the context of thinking about food deserts, but also thinking about food scarcity. Number six, food scarcity. Number seven, I am afraid that that human beings have diminished the world in such a way that they can no longer exist on it at a very near point in the future. Eight, number eight, something else I'm scared of is that the work that I've chosen to devote myself to is um, that it will have no effect on America. So I wake up often and think, like, you're a poet. Like, what are you doing? Okay, number nine. Um, I have a, a fear and an awareness of white women. And I'm not saying I'm not also afraid of white men. Um, but I feel like, in many ways, white women are the cog in what can change in America. I feel like if anyone is going to reach white men, it's white women. But I feel like oftentimes white women are also afraid to sacrifice any comfort or any power. And I've also watched the way my mother has been treated by white women. Yeah, so one of her bosses was uh, a white woman at the school. And this woman brought their, uh, their change back from their, the trip that they had gone on. Uh, I guess they were given like per diem and they had to bring back change, but they brought it back in a pickle jar full of pennies and dumped it on my mom's desk instead of giving her dollar bills. And just to hear my mom tell us about that, that was like a first example to think, huh. Number 10, the last one. Um, I am afraid of... Uh, like what I might compromise in order for America to love me. My name is Natalie Diaz, and these are 10 things that scare me. Mm -hmm. 
After the break, Kathy talks to Natalie Diaz about how she went from playing professional basketball to writing poetry, and why lately she's been writing love poems. And we're back. Natalie Diaz is many things. Mojave, Latinx, a linguist, a teacher, an award-winning poet, and, in a previous life, a professional basketball player. So Natalie learned to play basketball as a kid on the Fort Mojave Reservation. And then, as a teenager, she went to Old Dominion University on scholarship. In Tobin, her team was good. They went to the Final Four her freshman year. Ooh, impressive. And after she graduated, she went pro and played in Europe and Asia. But during that time of her life, Natalie said that she didn't openly identify as queer. When I played basketball, I didn't need uh, a kind of straightforward language to say what I was because I was mostly an athlete. Mm. And that's really all anybody cared about, you know. I see. Um, and I mean, not that they didn't care about me as a person, but I was viewed as an athlete. Like, that's the lens I was looked through. Um, and then... After I stopped playing and I, I found myself moving into language in a different way, like one, my indigenous language and, and language revitalization, but also poetry and, and literature, I suddenly realized there was something that I was, I was not naming about myself that was also letting me hide a part of myself. So there was a, you know, a sequence of a few years that maybe two to three years when I was really uncomfortable even saying, you know, queer poet. And, you know, and then you start to realize, though, that, okay, these words are being used as naming, as, as a, a powerful, like, um, a gesture of naming, of saying I exist, of saying I am here in this space. And so for me, it's a way of, like, enacting a type of family, uh, even among strangers. Um, mm -hmm. And that, I think, is really important. And it doesn't—that operates very similarly to the way basketball was. You know, like, I could be on a, on a court with any four other players, like— you know, in a pickup game, for example, and I, I could not know them, but suddenly I have to find ways of, of knowing them. How much work was it to play professionally? I mean, the work isn't so much the work of the body, I think. It becomes like the work of life. And for me, when it became too much is when I, I felt like I was missing out too much on, on another life that I knew was there. So, like, you know, I have a huge family, so being away from my family was was really difficult. Mm. Do you still think of yourself as an athlete? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and sometimes to a fault. Like, I was just, I was built through athletics. I, I think that way. I, in a way, like, I mean, my body was built on a court, and so I have this kind of literal and, and physical periphery. Mm that I can kind of see in a way I know that most people can't, like what's behind me. But that also is exactly the way my imagination works. You know, I spend a lot of time in, in the periphery. And that's, mm. I think, a lot of the reason why I've been able to, to do what I've been able to do, which is like to connect to people. And I think some of that has to do with what I learned on a basketball court. Mm. You know, like I think something that's helped me a lot is that I don't feel like I can ever lose on the page for example, because I've really lost in a game, you know, like I've missed the shot that could have won the game. Like I've fouled the player who made the shot who won the game. And so that's like a real kind of losing, like a measurable kind of losing. 
and, you know, things like a certain kind of confidence and, um, you know, uh, a willingness to be competitive, a willingness to, to lose. Some of those things have transferred over, um, but then, you know, some of them have not. So it's been interesting to kind of see how that energy has reorganized mm-hmm. uh, to become the things that I need it to be now. Do you ever miss the squeaks of sneakers on a basketball court? <laughs> I do. I dream about them. <laughs> I dream about them for sure. And it's, you know, it's silly because one of the first things I do when I get into a court, um, you know, especially like a, my favorite are the old wooden courts. But the first thing I do when I get onto a court is like start squeaking around a little really? bit. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, there's just something about like, oh, you know, the space, you know, and, it, and I think I probably lean into it a little more than I need to. So, you know, I might be shooting baskets and I'll be squeaking enough to sound as if I'm doing a lot more out there. Um, But there's something about that that does, you know, feel a lot like just kind of being barefoot at home even. You know, it's like that's when I'm most connected in a way to the ground, even though I'm on a court. Mm -hmm. So, I really want to talk about your poetry. You write very vividly in your poetry about hunger um, and like literally not having enough to eat. And then so then two of the fears that you talked about was about food scarcity. Um, is this something that you experienced firsthand? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a really big family. So um, I know what it feels like to have to have people bring you food. You know, I know what it's like to like watch my father like go to, you know, the welfare office and just say, I need help. Like, we need help. Can you give me food stamps? We had this like... Uh, I think probably most Latina or Mexican families have one. Like we had this uh, giant pot. We had one pot for menudo um, and one pot for beans. Mm. And so when we would come home and we you could smell it from outside the house, but you know like, oh, you know, like mom's cooking beans. And then we just know like that pot, we would just have beans forever, you know. Yeah. Like, and so it was kind of like the, you know, infinity bean pot. And the coloring of it just reminds me of, like, a galaxy. It was just this deep black pot with these, like, little speckles. Like, you could have been looking up at our desert sky at night. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think hunger of all kinds, right? Like, you know, if if you've ever been in a position where you've been hungry— like hungry for food, you've probably been in situations where you're hungering for other things as well, you know, like certain kinds of love and attention. And um, that's shaped a lot. Like I I think, you know, a lot of these hungers are connected. Gotcha. I understand that you've been writing a, a lot of love poems recently. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, the love poem to me feels... It feels like a space where I'm the most possible. It's a lot like basketball again. Mm. You know, I have a freedom of not being defined by somebody else, but a freedom of engaging in language and all its complexities. What's most important for me is that question, like, don't I also deserve that? And that's, I think, what I'm asking constantly is, don't I deserve this? Don't I deserve pleasure? Don't I deserve love? Don't I deserve desire? Those are the things I'm asking, you know, in the love poems. That kind of makes me think about the last fear that you uh, said in 10 Things is that um, you're afraid of what you'd have to compromise in in order for America to love you. What did you mean by that? Yeah, well, I think a lot of things, right? You know, for example, like I write in the English language, like I write in a language like that one didn't include me, but also was then like 
weaponized to diminish me. You know, I mean, we're called Indians for a reason. We've been called savages for a reason. And I think sometimes the biggest part of that compromise is that desire that says, like, no matter how strong I'm trying to be, no matter how much of myself I'm trying to be, I also need that validation. I, I also want it. You know, which is why I think basketball was such an important place for me to start because it was very clear. Mm. You know, you make a basket or you miss a basket. Like you won or you lost. And then suddenly when that disappeared, I was left with with all of these like paradoxes Mm -hmm. that say like, you know, how do I exist in a country like America? Like a country that was basically founded on crushing what I am. And I think those are some of the questions I have, I guess, about that idea of what I'm compromising mm-hmm. living here. Do you, when you're home on the reservation, are you comfortable being yourself, being a poet, being a queer poet? Yeah, we don't talk a lot about like my queerness or um, poetry when I'm there. Mm-hmm. You know, it, language is such a an interesting thing, right? Like, um, so while there is a lot of queerness on my reservation. The words that we were given to, you know, so we had lost our language for a little bit because of boarding schools and cavalry and all of these things. And so our language began to work in translation. But the words we were given to talk about queerness uh, and then then translated was nok, uh, which means like the coward's sickness or the coward's disease. Oh. And it was used because of the way the cavalrymen talked about the men who wouldn't go into battle. And that's not a way that Mojave's described these persons because we saw them as full people. They were just another kind of person and being and and part of our community. But when cavalry came in and saw this, of course they had to name it because it didn't fit into their standard of what a man should be. Uh-huh. Um, and so they began to call them cowards. And so then we took that English word and translated it back, and and now that's the word remaining in our lexicon, our Mojave lexicon, for how to talk about that. Oh, wow. Um, it's the same thing with my family. They Every word they ever knew for what I was meaning how I loved, so lesbian, queer, fag, I mean, they, they couldn't even distinguish them because in their mind, all of those terms were derogatory. Mm. And so while they had no problem with me having a partner— uh, living with my lover, suddenly when they had to speak about it is when they begin to have trouble about it because those words had only ever before to them meant something negative. But yeah, so at home, you know, when people think about me, they think about me in a couple ways, either as like still as having been an athlete or the fact that I, you know, worked with language. Um, but poetry and and like my queer identity aren't two things that are that are a big part of who I am to the people at home. That's poet Natalie Diaz. By the way, if you want to hear more episodes of 10 Things That Scare Me, go to 10thingspodcast.com. And spoiler alert, Kathy and I both did one. Keep an eye out. All right, it is credits time. The Nancy team includes Zakia Gibbons, Timmy Fagbenle, Stephanie Joyce, Jeremy Bloom, and Paula Schumann. The 10 Things team includes Amy Pearl, Daniel Guillemet, Sarah Sandback, Emily Botine, Melissa Chusid, and once again, Paula Schumann. 
Music and sound design by Isaac Jones. I'm Kathy Tu. I'm Tobin Lowe. Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. Tobin, to your dinosaur voice. Hi, guys. I'm extinct. What are you doing today? Getting hit by a comet.